0: You're listening to the RUV English podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is slash English. Hello, welcome to the RUV English podcast. My name is Darren Adam. Thank you very much for your company. Hope you are well today. My guest today is my colleague, Ingolfur Bjarni Siegfriedsson, who is with Kvekur, a program that's broadcast here on RUV. That if you're an English speaker, you might not be familiar with it. So maybe, Inglefield, we just start with Kaveka. I'm going to congratulate you on the award given to the show in the last couple of weeks in just a moment, but tell me about Kaveka.
1: Well, Kaveka is a show we started, uh, well, about seven years ago, we started uh, talking about this. Uh, a bunch of us who've been here, or had at that point been here for quite a while, but thought uh, we were missing a a regular outlet for uh, investigative piece, pieces and sort of longer features where we uh, are able to do deep dives into uh, um, stories of all sorts and and, uh, try to make some good television at the same time. Mm. So um, I guess for Brits, panorama might be something you could compare it to. Um, yeah, that's sort of what
0: we're aiming for. And I've been doing that for now while Uh, we're finishing our sixth season. And some of the content is available online in English. If you want to sample this, I guess, Kvekur in English, you'll find that on the RUV website, ruv.is. And yes, congratulations on the EDDA Well, thank you. The Icelandic Oscars. Indeed, I'm going to choose to call them that. Well, you know. Yes, (laughs) sure. Let's go for it. (laughs) Well, so well done on that. Okay, let's press on with this week's news. The week in Iceland, of course, continuing as a strand here on the Roof English podcast service. And as we sit here, it's just coming up to quarter to midday on Monday, and of course, in the last few hours, as we sit here, two avalanches have fallen in East Iceland. And the good news, as far as we can tell, Ingleford, so far, is that there are very few, if any, injuries.
1: Yeah, it seems only minor injuries, which is a good thing. This is a a town that certainly uh, has a history of avalanches. They have quite significant structures in the mountainside sort of to stop them. Uh, I believe there are still some gaps Mm. uh, where where, uh, snow can get through. They plan to build more, but... Uh, On our website, we do have pictures where people basically show how snow got into their bedrooms. Yes. And it's a scary thing when this happens.
0: And this was on the second floor of an apartment building as well, I think, wasn't it? So it gives you a sense of the scale, but also I think the speed with which these avalanches fell and made progress. They weren't especially dense or thick, maybe, in terms of the quantity of the snow, but the speed with which they pushed literally through the town is pretty terrifying.
1: Yeah, that seems to have been the, 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 the big uh, part of the story is, is, as you said, it's not a huge mass, but it went really quickly. Mm. And when that comes speeding towards you, oof, I wouldn't want to be in its
0: way. The mayor of Fjaldabith is Jon Bjorn Haukunersson, and right. he has said that the condition of the residents is good, as we've said, very few injuries, if at all. But on the avalanche protection, in particularly one of these towns, he says the defence has to have proven their worth precisely because there have been very few injuries. Uh, let's hope, and,
1: and, and you know, Um, There was a reason that they put up these defenses in in, uh, this particular town, but in other towns around Iceland. I mean, there's plenty of villages and towns that are very close to uh, Mm. steep mountains really where you have a lot of snow accumulating and, of course, there is a risk of this happening. Isafjord, on the yeah. opposite side of the country in the West, has a history of this and we've had some horrific, in, in the west fjord some horrific yeah. Yeah. avalanches uh, throughout the last two decades.
0: And that will be the memory for the entire country, I suppose, those very serious avalanches Absolutely. when many people lost their lives.
1: I'm I'm sure a lot of people woke up this morning and saw the first headlines coming in and sort of the first sketchy details we were getting through on radio. And sort of people of of my age, at least, you know, you know, approaching fifty, will remember things that happened uh, well, when I was a teenager in, in in the West Fjords and think, oh, oh my God, I hope this isn't happening again. And I, uh, it, you know, I think we're all grateful that it didn't. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, it's one of those things that you sort of look around in Reykjavik where we don't have any snow and it's a sunny day, even if it's chilly, and you kind of starting you're starting to think winter is over, mm, and winter mm. is not over. Winter is by no means over, Uh, certainly not outside of Reykjavik and, uh, you know, in Iceland. You could expect wintry conditions through May, depending on the year.
0: Yeah, I'm just wondering when I should get the studded tires on my car changed for summer tires. 15th of April is, I think, the point at which you have to do it. Right, right.
1: Uh, If you're driving inside Reykjavik, most years you don't really need the studded tires. Mm. You know, I've driven on all-year tires for a few years. It's fine. If you're going outside of Reykjavik, yeah, you might need something more.
0: Yeah. okay, And it's worth saying as well that as we sit here, there is a yellow weather warning for the uh, southeastern part of Iceland and the east fjords as well to accompany, of course, as you might expect, those those avalanches. And as we sit here, by the time this is published, this may well change and everyone hopes that it does. But Route 1... The road that goes around the entirety of the Icelandic coast a significant stretch of that is closed as well I think as we sit here between Vík and Eelstadia.
1: yes there's been some significant snowfall in the in the southeast primarily we actually expected some snowfall in Reykjavik yesterday mm-hmm. um, that didn't come it went further east yeah. and it's, it's making life quite tricky for people uh, there's a uh, And, of course, tourist season has started, which means there's a lot of people who aren't quite used to these kind of circumstances, travelling around Iceland, perhaps not quite prepared for what they're running into.
0: I gave advice to a friend of mine from the UK who was in Iceland with his family in, I think, October of last year, or October, Mm -hmm. November, possibly. And he was keeping me up to date on Facebook Messenger about where they were going, and he had an itinerary all planned. He's that sort of person. He's all sort of planned out and said, well, tonight we're going to be in such and such a place. And I said, well, you might not be there because there's a chance that Route 1's going to close. And he went, but we have to be there because we've got accommodation booked. Well, no, no, I'll say it again. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's a chance that the only road fundamentally that you will have to get from where you are to where you're going will not be open. And then the penny sort of dropped, and he realised that, yeah, that's what happens here if that road closes, you can't make an alternative plan short of, I don't know, flying, maybe, if, if that's possible.
1: Very often but that's the case. I mean, it's Route yeah. 1, and you sort of think that must be the tourist road, you know, the Route 1, like, I don't know, Pacific highway, Coast Highway yeah, exactly. in, yeah, in yeah. the States yeah. or something. Uh, you know, no, that's the... <laughs> Road in many parts of the country from, from to get from one place to another, and it's I think it's very common for people to sort of you know mm. they've they've seen Game of Thrones or some of the movies that've been shot in Iceland or some of those influencers on various social media mm. putting up a very very pretty picture of Iceland and it's a beautiful place
0: but it's a dramatic place uh, and the drama is because it's yeah. dangerous. And when those roads close, they close for a reason. We're not messing about in Iceland when those roads close and when transport comes and is ground to a halt. And I compare that with the UK, where famously six flakes of snow will close Heathrow Airport. The people running the airport will completely lose their mind if a flake of snow falls from the sky. That isn't the case here in Iceland. No, things also, keep going I'm sure, a, until they don't. And if they don't, it means that something serious has happened.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you've landed at Keflavik Airport under <laughs> circumstances where you think this probably wasn't a good idea, where you sort of had your plane you know. Well, you couldn't flying, see anything so. <laughs> well. You just sort of sort of sit there and sort of bounce yeah, yeah, around yeah. on the tarmac
0: as they sort of, you know, just go for it. The weather one imagines has has been a component of a, a tragedy in Iceland recently. This is at the Glimur waterfall just to the east of Kvalfjö there when a tourist in her 20s who'd been walking with her partner had reached the top of the gorge on the east side near the waterfall and tragically fell off the edge Mm -hmm. uh, and fell to her death and the head of the Icelandic Tourist Board has subsequently said that as you would imagine as you would hope everyone involved with the safety of tourists in Iceland there needs to be an ongoing conversation about how this can be improved Absolutely, I mean this is a horrific accident and I you
1: know, your heart goes out to people who are are grieving because of of events like this. Um, it does underline, I think, two things. Uh, Iceland is a dangerous place. You know, it's beautiful and dramatic, but it's also quite dangerous. And when you're visiting a waterfall, and it's about a maybe a forty minute drive from Reykjavik, it's mm. not that far. You know, you can leave your hotel in the morning and you can be back for a late lunch. So you think it's harmless and safe, and uh, and it's not.
0: No. And it's but it's a also, lengthy hike as well it, isn't it? Is, it well it's a part.
1: it's a bit of a hike and um and, and, you know last time I hiked there I mean it's not really I mean it's tr- it's truly a hike. It's not somewhere where you just put on your sneakers and mm. and you follow the well-trodden tourist path or or paved one. No, it's a hike, you know. And if there's ice and snow um that can be tricky but this also underlines how important it is for Iceland with our millions of tourists per year to invest in infrastructure mm. too and it's been done in various places but there're still other places like Glimmer where you, you know you're you're doing it the way people did probably 25 years ago or even longer um, and again if you if that's not not something you're used to doing mm. and you're not able to sort of analyze the circumstances, it can be very tricky and very dangerous, as this illustrates. Sadly. One,
0: one stat that came from this story is the expectation that by 2030, the number of tourists in Iceland will be twice that of the pre-pandemic peak, which would be about, what, six million, something like that. It means that, you know, it'll be
1: time for the rest of us just to leave and <laughs> rent our apartments out, just Airbnbs and, uh, you know... Um, right. It felt like there was, we were verging on having too many tourists by mm. 2019, so if we'll have twice that amount, hey, jeez.
0: Yeah. I'm conflicted because I obviously first came to Iceland with my partner as tourists in 1998. Uh, when very few people did. you were alone then. Yeah, Uh, it was me and David Nolburn, basically, the two of us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and there were three of us. And then over the years, obviously, the tourist numbers have increased and we've kept coming, and I'm now an Icelandic citizen, which is perhaps the greatest honour I've ever experienced in my life. It's it's still an amazing sort of pinch-me moment every day. But coming from those tourist roots, I find it difficult to be in any way condemnatory of tourists or people who want to come here, and I think... As far as is possible, Iceland has to match that desire for people to see the place? I don't I don't think anyone condemns the tourists. I understand why people will want
1: to come here. I'm glad they do. They've increased our quality of life. I mean, the fact that we have as many restaurants in Reykjavik as we do. This is a city of less than 200,000 people. Yeah. We have plenty of nice restaurants. It's because there's tourists. You know, the, these places wouldn't survive. If it was only, you know, you and me and the other three. Mm. Um so i mean absolutely you know they've they've they come in here and they spend money and 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 that's a great thing i think there's two questions that iceland needs to ask which is how many tourists can this island take because people are here for you they're not here to stand in a queue at every waterfall and geyser they're here in part for the solitude for mm-hmm. you know for mm-hmm. the chance of spending a few minutes somewhere out in the wilderness alone. And if there's 6 million others, that's going to be tricky. But I think the, the, the criticism that most Icelanders have, is probably directed toward other Icelanders, the ones that are, you know, gung ho on making money off of tourism, no matter what, and perhaps not, um, doing the homework, you know, mm. putting too much pressure on their staff, on their infrastructure. Um, those are the tricky elements that people want to visit, that's great. Uh, but there might be a number, you know, a cap that we need to say, you know, there is a finite number of people who can come here mm-hmm. without just spoiling what yeah. they're here to to actually see.
0: But then I wonder if, let's go back to 1998, if somebody had said then, you know, if we ever reach 2 million, that's going to be completely unsustainable. So mm-hmm. that's the limit. We've been past that limit right. and will be again this year. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we won't know what the limit is until we reach it. Well, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know how you
1: would define yeah. it as such. Uh, we've also managed to spread out the tourist season. I mean, you know, not that many years ago, tourists would be here. And, well, you know, maybe late May, but mostly mm. just June, July, and August. And then they'd leave. That was tourist season. Now they're here also during the winter. They're also not only in the southwest corner, but in the north, that even in the west where tourists were barely seen not that many years yeah. ago so you know things have spread out but but if you go to some of the the tourist highlights you know they, they can be almost congested at certain times of the year you know if you're going to sort of the south of iceland where you have these waterfalls you have these geysers you have sort of some of these the black beaches the highlights yeah. that almost every tourist visits. there's going to be a lot of people there yeah
0: so you know um well, I would recommend if someone's listening to this and they've never been to Iceland and they you know, have it on their bucket list or it's something that's been recommended to them by so many people, I would certainly recommend coming in the winter. Now, that's because I'm weird and I like the darkness, and I don't like the sunshine. It's already too bright for me uh. as we sit here at the end of March. So, you know, God only knows what the rest of the, the summer's going to be like. We've pretty much only ever been here in winter. Uh-huh. So I'm very, you know, in tune with the particular attractions and beauty and appeal of this country during the winter months. Northern lights being a, an obvious example, but mm-hmm. but it doesn't end there. I think when you step into a thermal pool... And the air temperature is minus 12. And suddenly the rest of your body is submerged in 40 degree water. That's a pretty special feeling. It is.
1: I think uh, uh, there is a, there's something about winter, but because we love summer, we wait for winter to be over sort of. I think we just assumed that everyone else would want to be here, you know, during the white nights of July. Uh, So it probably took us a while to figure out that there actually, actually is a lot of people. There's plenty of people interested in coming here. For the frost and snow and yeah. the dark nights and, and the stuff that sometimes you wait for, you know, January, February, you, we yeah. sort of just wait for them to be and over. And the
0: skiing and the snowmobiling and the winter yeah, sports sure. as well, yeah, which all is of becoming that. increasingly important. But you're
1: going to go nuts and, and you know...
0: Yeah, I, I'm, on the, I'm on the cusp already, I think. I'm just yeah, a, you know, <laughs> just when the sun
1: really doesn't go down, your brain sort of goes into overdrive.
0: Yeah, I'm and already... You know, should be doing something. I'm already thinking, can I get away with taping aluminium foil onto the windows <laughs> of our rented apartment? Is that going to attract the wrong kind of attention? I don't know. Right, um, let's let's stay with travel. Loosely. This is an idea from FEB, which is the Association of Motor Vehicle Owners, broadly equivalent to the AA or the RAC in the UK, something like that, sort of Mm -hmm. motorist Mm organisation. And they have proposed a change in the way that drivers and car owners pay for driving currently of course there's a vehicle tax that you pay and there's also duty on fuel as well they are proposing a change to a per kilometer charge mm-hmm. and everyone would pay a different charge based on how heavy their car is and the co2 emissions of the car interestingly well let's discuss whether it is the Minister of Finance has essentially got behind this idea and said he thinks it's quite a good idea does that mean it's more likely to happen do you think What he likes to do tends to be what happens, but yes, I mean, to an extent,
1: this is a reaction to the growing number of electric vehicles. Mm. Uh, Those have been, well, they have sort of gotten, I guess you could call them subsidized by the state. Uh, For years, you would get your VAT back, you know, they'd have lower customs, et cetera, than than, uh, regular gas guzzlers. Mm. As the number of these vehicles rises, uh, <clears throat> and these taxes were, of course, from the gas guzzlers, were used uh, to pay for inf- roads and infrastructure. You have dwindling funds, and you have to figure out how to go about doing it. Also, because you know there's plenty of non-taxpayers in Iceland uh, driving on the roads, you have to come up with a plan to say, you know, how do we, how 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 can we afford the infrastructure needed for six million people driving around? Uh, and how do we do that in a fair manner? You know, is it just the gas guzzlers that should pay tax, or is it the electric vehicles? How do we go about doing it? And this might be a way of doing it in something that at least sounds not yes.
0: unfair. Well, he has also said. This is the finance minister has also said that uh, the owners of electric cars will not be able to drive for nothing for much longer. So those um, yep. uh, concessions are likely to disappear anyway. I, I mean, it's it's interesting because the concessions,
1: of course, are to to try to change the the uh, basically the, the how, how we drive. I, you know, going from uh, petrol burning cars to to, to electric ones. Norway, which went this down this route of, of subsidizing, they have reached a much higher percentage of electric vehicles than we have, and they are only now thinking about stopping yeah. subsidizing. So, Iceland might be getting off of that track a little too early, yeah. but then, you know, it's always a political choice, and I think they worry a little, a lot about it, just the, the dwindling taxes coming in. Yeah.
0: If I was going to drive to you know, Iceland's second city, Akureyri, from here in Reykjavik, that would take about six hours, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure I'd be confident doing that in an electric vehicle. I'd be very confident doing it as I have done in a, in a petrol vehicle because I sure. know that if the car runs out of petrol, I can fill out it, you know, recharge it essentially with gas in in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if Iceland is ever going to be ready for electric vehicles until they can replicate the kind of range that we get from fossil fuel cars?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question and it's a tricky one because, you know, we know as it gets colder, the range for an electric or a hybrid, it's much shorter. Uh, You know, if you have an electric vehicle that's a few years older and you live in Salfos and you work in Reykjavik, that's maybe an hour's drive. Well, in wintertime, it's very likely they'd have to stop somewhere in the middle (laughs) and charge. you wouldn't drive to Akure, you know, to save your no. life in that car. You no. t- t- take you 24 hours. It's just also a question of the infrastructure. You know, how are you going to put up these charging points at every, you know, in every village, on every highway, everywhere? Especially if you want to uh, the tourists to drive around in yeah. and electric vehicles, which is sort of the plan. It's very hard to see. There's a. There's certainly plenty of people who say, you know, this case, this country is a great example of where electric cars even if that would be great for us because we produce all our le- electricity, where it's certainly in the current form, isn't sustainable. It's not possible. Yeah. Now, in five, ten years' time, will they have more range? Will it be easier? Will their batteries not sort of zonk out because it's freezing? Who knows? Hopefully.
0: Yeah. If you can get a 500-kilometer charge in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah which is broadly what you'd get when you fill up with petrol, isn't it, in a a small car. Then if you get to that sort of calculation, that kind of possibility, then I think people Mm -hmm. are going to switch. But then you've got the cost, which is also vast for a new electric car compared with its petrol equivalent. So a lot of things have to change before this. Which
1: which is why the government was sort of giving this this rebate, this this discount off of various things to make it more economically valuable for people
0: on the charge per kilometer driven idea which as we said will be calculated according to co2 emissions as as well as the weight of the vehicle i mean to an extent that's already covered by the fuel on the the the, the duty on fuel isn't it because if you drive a car which consumes twice as much petrol as mine mm-hmm. chances are it's going to emit greater co2 but mm-hmm. you're already paying more because you're absolutely. having to buy more fuel absolutely so that that's already part of the system to an extent
1: Yes, and it'll be interesting to see if they will, if they go to this, you know, per kilometer, uh, you know, drive and pay. If they will uh, remove the various uh, levies and and taxes on on petrol, my guess is
0: not. Let's stick with costs and the number of people who are about to, for example, find their mortgage costs increase as their fixed interest rates expire. The union, ASE, saying that the support system. In the housing market is weak, and the government needs to take specific measures because people are going to be paying a lot more mm-hmm. simply to keep a roof over their head. And this yeah. is a perennial problem, but it's one that appears to be particularly bad, I would say, in Reykjavik, in the capital. Well, uh, compared well other
1: yeah, property prices here are generally higher, so people have stretched themselves more th- more thinly than they have in most other places. If you're, you know, if you have an, either a fixed rate or a, of course we have this odd thing of indexation mm. which is a uniquely Icelandic thing. Just unpack that then explain that for So indexation basically means that the in 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 a regular system or society which uses indexation means that the cost of whatever is is adjusted uh, according to some sort of index which might be inflation it might be the cost of living or the cost of housing. Uh, In Iceland, we use indexation, but only really for debt, Mm. which means if inflation goes up, my mortgage goes significantly up, I pay a lot more. My wages are not indexed, however. I think Iceland is the only country in the world that goes for partial indexation, which means that almost all the time, if something happens, the general public is just screwed. Because you didn't really do anything wrong, you behaved sensibly, but external factors are are really it's the the
0: bit that costs us money that's increased essentially.
1: Exactly. So you know, if my mortgage is is decent, but because of indexation and the current inflation, it's shooting up. Um, Now, I bought my apartment years and years ago, but if I was fifteen years younger and I had only bought it in the last couple of years. I would be worried. Yeah. Uh, even if I was making all right money and had behaved sort of, you know, sensibly in the economic sense, I might still be looking at a mountain that I was not sure I'd be able to climb.
0: Well, there's two main ways of acquiring a property to live in. You can buy it or you can rent it. And obviously, if you are renting, you're going to be hit as well to an extent by the cost of the mortgage. Of the owner yep. of that property, the yep. chances are that cost is going to be passed on as well. But when ASE talk about the government ne- needing to take specific measures, they, they presumably have in mind everyone's housing costs, whether they rent or whether they buy.
1: One would one would assume, although the the number of people who rent is is comparatively low to to the number of people that actually buy. Uh, historically, we all tend to buy our apartments opposed, um, uh, you know on the continent, certainly people will be unfamiliar with the concept of constantly buying property, but that's just a thing here. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, I, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, what do they expect the government to do? Um, basically, s- do something that will enable people to offset other costs, uh, you know, tax deduction, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I mean, it. One thing that seems to be quite certain is that you don't want a lot of people losing their homes. Uh, That's certainly more expensive than, and more just Mm -hmm. difficult for society than anything else. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with.
0: uh, It's maybe fallen out of fashion in recent years, but governments in other countries certainly used to boast about the number of homes that they were building. They would Mm -hmm. take ownership of the idea. You had lots of social housing being built, for example, by governments. Does that happen? Here, do, do we have governments that will proudly say that one of our jobs is to build more homes? Not least because that, of course, reduces the cost of, of housing for everyone else.
1: I mean, housing has become sort of a, a municipal issue, Yeah, um, less than for national governments. Um, the current government, of course, is, is combined of a left green party, a farmer's party in the middle, and, and the conservatives on one side, I'd be very surprised if they could come up with a plan where they would sort of practically do something to increase building. We've had a shortage of new housing for years and years and years, which is, of course, put up property prices. Mm-hmm. We also see that those in the construction business are making profits that are just almost unheard of. So there are multiple issues that need to be tackled at the same time. Um, it's it's hard to say where to begin, mm. but um, but as long as we have these sort of twin problems of just a lack of housing, and um, and housing that is so expensive, even if you've managed to acquire it, it may become unattainable. So it's a tricky situation to
0: to to get through. And just to it, the only relief, I suppose, for Icelanders compared with certainly the rest of Europe at this stage is that the winter has not been expensive in terms of heating costs. That's one thing we seem to, to yeah. get away uh, with for obvious reasons. Yes, yes. I mean, I think we, you know, com- compared to, to
1: Europe and the countries that are sort of hit by the effects of the war in Ukraine. Yes. I mean, certain things have gone up in, in price just because they're imported. But uh, heating and electricity aren't part of them. Uh, which is a good thing.
0: It's something, isn't it? Small mercies. We'll take the indeed. win. Indeed. Ingleford, thank you very much indeed, Ingleford. Bjarni Siegforsen from kaveka the award winning, the Edda winning kaveka here on Ruve. Joining me today on the Ruve English podcast. We shall play out this episode of the week in Iceland as ever with a piece of music. This is Goose Goose and Into the Strange. Get in touch with Ruve English anytime. We are English at RUV.is. And you can also find us now on Twitter. At RUV English.
2: Let's make way for the gimlet eyes and piercing. Gaze. The winds have shifted, our eyes are burning bright Podcast. To hear more and for all the news from Iceland in English, just head to ruv.is English.